Welcome, welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, sounding super professional as I have grown to be these days. And I have a cool episode for you today. I know I say that about every episode. Personally, I think every episode is cool, so you're probably going to hear that a lot. But today, we're actually going to be at the President Woodrow Wilson House here in Washington, D.C., and we're going to talk to the executive director of the museum, and we're going to learn all about Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, and his wife, the house that they shared together that they bought after the presidency. And then we're also going to talk about a very special baseball and why this King's game, it's been called, a baseball game was so important and kind of this revolutionary way that American history and American culture was starting to spread and seep into cultures around the world. So we're going to talk about those cool items. We got a lot of fun facts for you today. I did want to mention you guys can see pictures of the baseball and pictures of all the different stuff and kind of a blog post that I create at curatorschoicepodcast.com. So that way you guys can kind of get fully immersed in what we're talking about today by looking at the pictures. And just a reminder that you can follow Curator's Choice on Facebook for the Facebook page so you can see cool content. And then also on Instagram, I have an Instagram for Curator's Choice and I'm going to start trying to be a lot more active on those. As it is right now, I don't post a lot on them, but I think it would be better for me to start posting a lot more. So I'm going to do that and hopefully you guys enjoy it and hopefully you enjoy this episode. We can get rolling here. We're speaking today with Elizabeth Karcher at the Woodrow Wilson House. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about the house, and then some of the fun stuff we have today. Sure, great. So yes, my name is Elizabeth Karcher. I'm the executive director at the Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, DC. We are part of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which is an organization. uh, There are about 27 different houses across America that are part of the collection of historic houses that the National Trust owns and sponsors and supports. um, The Wilson House being one of them. The Wilson House, we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the day Woodrow and Edith retired from the White House and moved into the house. So that was uh, a very big day. And as as the executive director, I think to myself, were it not for that day and were it not for them to move into this particular house and were it not for Edith to bequeath it to the National Trust, we wouldn't all be here today. So that is something to celebrate. The house was originally built, uh, designed by a famous architect named Wadi Butler Wood, who designed a number of uh, buildings in Washington, D.C. He was quite, quite well known at the turn of the century, and and, uh, the house was designed in 1915 uh, or built, started in 1915, completed in 1916. Um, There are a number of buildings that are Wadi Butler Wood buildings, including Department of the Interior, as well as the Museum of uh, Women in the Arts are two of the famous big buildings, but we do have a walking tour in part of the Wilson House. We do a walking tour of Wadi Butler Wood houses around the neighborhood, and we call it If These Walls Could Talk. So we have only about 20 houses on our on our walking tour. There are a lot more than 20 houses that Wadi Butler Wood uh, designed. One of them, as I said, is the Wilson House. 
a couple called the Fairbanks. They owned the Bigelow Carpet Company, and they were the ones they, that built the house. And it is, um, it's rather spectacular because at the time, in 1916, it was really state of the art. It had everything that was, you know, very fancy for, for uh, the Washington social scene. And at the time, there weren't many embassies that were in that neighborhood. It wasn't until the stock market crash that people who owned these private residences started to sell off the, the houses to, uh, to foreign countries so that they wouldn't be, you know, these houses wouldn't be destroyed. So this section is actually called Embassy Row. And I wanted to tell you guys all of the different embassies that are actually along this area because it's really kind of surreal when you're walking through and you're just seeing all these different flags from all these different nations. So on Embassy Row, it includes the embassies of Trinidad and Tobago, Chile, Uzbekistan, Portugal, Indonesia, Luxembourg, Togo, Sudan, Bahamas, Ireland, Romania, Cyprus, Guatemala, Armenia, Latvia, Burkina Faso, Kyrgyzstan, Madagascar, Paraguay, Malawi, where I actually served as a Peace Corps volunteer, Ivory Coast, Korea, Japan, Brazil, Bolivia, and the United Kingdom. All right, going back, let's hear a little bit more about the Wilsons and getting themselves into this house on Embassy Row. The Wilsons moved in, as I said, Inauguration Day 100 years ago was on March 4th. And so, of course, March 4th is the day that they moved in. Inauguration Day, we, we just went through an inauguration, we know. The president, um, the outgoing president, his household is packed up in the morning at the White House. It's packed up on the morning of inauguration and moved out during the inauguration ceremonies and the new president is moved in. So it's a very busy day at the White House. Uh, and the photograph that we have, I've got two photographs of moving day on March 4th, 1921, of one is of the truck leading up to the front door and the other is of the truck with all the president and Edith Wilson's belongings on the front stoop. <laughs> and you think, you know, moving day really hasn't changed that much in a hundred years. <laughs> the one thing that's different is they moved things in barrels, which I hadn't really thought about before, but there weren't moving boxes. There were a lot of trunks, which we have a lot of the trunks in our collection, uh, but they're also moving barrels. And I guess people, you would put things in a barrel, like a, a cask, you know, a, a cedar cask or a, an oak cask barrel, and you would, it would make it easier to roll on and off a truck or up and down. So you see a lot, a number of, either that or he had a very big collection of things that were, were kept in casks, but it was prohibition, so probably not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we do have a wine cellar. Um, we do have a, a prohibition wine cellar. Uh, you could move wine and spirits um, even during prohibition from one personal residence to another. You couldn't sell it. So um, so we do have a prohibition wine cellar at the Woodrow Wilson house. Sneaky, sneaky. So what can I tell you about Woodrow Wilson and his wife? He's the 28th president. Um, he came into office uh, in 1913. Um, his, he was married to his first wife. His name, her name was Ellen. And she died in the White House with a very short, shortly after they, he started his presidency. They moved into the White House with their three daughters. I jokingly say it's kind of three weddings and a funeral. So they move into the White House. 
one daughter gets married at the White House, the next daughter gets married not at the White House, but during Wilson's administration, but his beloved wife of 30 plus years, Ellen, dies in the White House. Uh, Wilson goes into a very deep depression. It's the beginning of World War I. The, the world is kind of falling apart around him. This, this, uh, his presidency, you know, two daughters are gone and his wife is now deceased. He, he has a doctor, a personal doctor. His health hadn't been really terrific. Even since his 20s, apparently, he had had some issues with um, issues of stroke and as well as stomach uh, digestive problems. But he has a personal doctor who is tending to him because he goes into a very deep depression even during his presidency. And the doctor would take him out for walks. That was kind of a constitutional thing to keep his health going. And one day, about six months into his uh, mourning after, after his wife's death, he sees a woman on the street and he says to the doctor, who's that beautiful woman? And the doctor says, my goodness, this is the first sign of life the guy's had. Let's find out who that beautiful woman is. And so the doctor, Grayson, is really part of a matchmaker in that he finds out who the woman is and arranges for her to come to the White House for tea with Wilson's cousin, who is, has taken over at the role of social secre as secretary, of, as really as first lady. And so her name is Edith Bowling Galt, and they a romance ensues. And it seems almost like a little bit of a whirlwind, too. It's a bit of a whirlwind. It's a bit of a whirlwind. So Edith Bowling Galt had been married to a man who was deceased, and she was living in Washington as a businesswoman, as an independent working woman. She'd come from Virginia. They had that in common. They were both from Virginia. Whereas his first wife was very well educated. She'd been uh, an art, an, an artist and had shown her work at different, um, at the Art Students League and, and uh, different salon, let's say, in, uh, and schools of art across the United States. Um, his wife, Edith, was really a working, a woman who worked. She owned, a, a, she inherited through her husband who had died, the Galt Jewelry, jewelry Company, a jewelry and silver company in Washington, D.C., in fact. And she ran it. Uh, she didn't have much education. She had two years of formal advanced education. Other than that, she'd really been homeschooled in an old school kind of way. But they met, they fell in love, and they got married very shortly thereafter. She was his companion and confidant and really her, she saw her primary job as taking care of Woodrow Wilson. I mean, that was how, and she dedicated herself to him so much so that she helped him when he'd had the stroke in the White House. She went, even before that, she went to Europe with him to accompany him to the, to the negotiations to sign the peace for, uh, after World War I. Um, there are photographs of, you know, a room filled with diplomats and military entourage and Woodrow Wilson and one woman and that's Edith Wilson and so she's she's really for a woman who who didn't have formal education you know was a businesswoman she really cut a, a scene on the center you know on the scene of the world and center stage and and so that's a rather remarkable thing they came home to the White House he has filled out his two terms. And now, of course, we're back to Inauguration Day on March 4th, 1921. And a lot has happened to Woodrow Wilson in the last eight years. 
And uh, so he moves into this house in Calorama. Most presidents go back to their home state. Now, Wilson didn't have a home state. He had been president of Princeton University and then governor of New Jersey. Was he born in Virginia? He was born in Virginia. He grew up in, uh, he spent some time in Georgia, in South Carolina, been a uh, teach a university professor at Bryn Mawr and at other schools along in Virginia, along the East Coast, but had never, didn't really have a home state to go back to. As I said, his wife was, he'd been at Princeton for almost 30 years. He couldn't go back there. He wasn't going to go back to that university. He wasn't going to go back to New Jersey. He'd been governor. So, and, and now Edith, Edith wasn't going to move to New Jersey either. So they settled in Washington, D.C. And she found this house. She'd spent some time looking for the house and it had a trunk lift, which was really designed to carry the trunks of clothing and things in the house. And she had it converted to be an elevator, an Otis elevator, which in fact still operates today. And it was really for Wilson to be going up and down the stairs. It was a way to have him be able to manage in this, in this house. So she had the, the trunk lift converted to an elevator and they moved in. He didn't see the house until after he, after they'd in fact purchased it. And people say, well, how, well, he must've been rich. How did he afford this? He had just won the Nobel Peace Prize and had $50,000 of prize money. Oh, I didn't actually know that you got money for that prize. Yeah, he got $50,000 prize money for the Nobel Peace Prize. And 10 friends each gave him $10,000. Okay, well, where do I find these friends? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Especially back then? Oh my goodness. $10,000 a friend is, is a lot. Friends in high places. Oh, no, don't forget, he'd been president and, um, and, and people did see him as, you know, a hero. He, at the time, he was really, you know, people came out into the streets to, to cheer him on. Vive Wilson and worldwide, he was seen as a hero. So with the $150,000, he purchased this house on S Street in Calorama, uh, and they moved in. And they decorated it because they had never lived together in any house other than the White House. It was kind of a yours, mine, and ours. So there's things from his his past, her past, things they collected, uh, a number of gifts of state. Before 1965, in fact, presidents could keep the gifts that they received from uh, other countries. They didn't have to turn it over to the National Archives or to the Library of Congress. So you'll see in a room like the library, and uh, we have uh, the drawing room at the Wilson House, are filled with gifts of state from other countries, which is rather remarkable. So the Wilson House has not changed in over a hundred years. In many ways, Edith Wilson was our first curator. She kept it very much like the day Wilson died in 1924. And she went on to live in the house another 37 years and bequeathed it to the National Trust where the National Trust turned it into a museum in a few, 1965, became open to the public to share the private residence and these as a president, the 28th president. Our focus today, as I mentioned, we are not much has changed except the conversation. 
and today's conversation about Wilson and his administration and his legacy is the consequences of the choices that he made that included injustices for uh, racial and social injustices that uh, were clearly a mistake, clearly misguided, and clearly were racist and segregationist, and that those choices that he and his administration made 100 years ago really affected our country today. So those are part, the conversation has changed, but the contents and the setting haven't changed. What was their lives like up until the point where Woodrow died? What did they do as a married couple? So as a married couple in this house, he he received Lloyd George came, uh, Clemenceau came to visit him. He had dignitaries from around the world who would come to visit him at this house. He gave, it's actually one of the first radio speeches. Remember, this is 100 years ago. Even though there's technology and there's electricity and uh, the house you know has running water and electricity, radio was not really used as a vehicle for communicating uh, with the American people. And so, but he did make a speech on the anniversary of Armistice Day in 1923. He made a speech from this very room, from the library, on the radio on Armistice Day to commemorate Armistice Day. So um, he was still very much engaged in life and politics, uh, Washington life. We have a room in the on the entry level of the, the house. It's a Georgian style, Georgian revival style house. And when you come in, there was what originally was called the men's cloakroom on the left and the ladies' cloakroom on the right. The men's cloakroom was turned into what they call the dugout. And the dugout is because Wilson loved baseball. And so part of his day would be going down to the dugout every day and helping pour through thousands upon thousands of letters of thanks and you know, commending Wilson for all the wonderful things that he did. He would go to the dugout and go through with his secretary all the mail that that he would receive every day, which was a lot, and it was a lot of mail. But so that's how they would spend their day is they would also take a ride every afternoon in the car. Wilson did not know how to drive a car. Edith Wilson knew how to drive a car. She was one of the first women in Washington, D.C. to have a car and to have a driver's license. And so she was a very, she was a very, for a woman who was, she was not, she did not support suffrage, which is remarkable. She's rather complicated in that she owned her own business. She made her own money. She drove her own car. And yet she did not support women, the women's vote. So she, uh, she and Woodrow would go for afternoon drives in the car something that he really enjoyed. She didn't know how to ride a bicycle. She learned how to ride a bicycle. Woodrow Wilson taught her how to ride a bicycle in the basement of the White House. And yet she knew how to drive a car uh, and had her own car. And apparently she tried to teach him how to drive a car, but that didn't go over very well. (laughs) So Woodrow Wilson kind of, he's, he's a cool character. He's got a lot going on in his history, but for me as a stout conservationist that I am, I really appreciate what he did for the National Park Service. 
he, um, yes, he founded the National Park Service. It had been um, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, we know was president before and was a big outdoorsman, really. He too, you know, suffered greatly after the death of his wife and mother, this is Teddy Roosevelt, and went out West to kind of find himself. And seeing the Wild West, realized that that was, a, that, that is something that's so special about America is that we, this diversity of landscape and, and these parks are a big part of it. And he started by the concept of having national parks. Woodrow Wilson then was able to push it through to actually start the National Park Service. So yeah, which is to preserve, to preserve our, our green spaces and our, our the beauty of our national parks. So a fun little side note about the National Park Service is Yellowstone was actually the first of America's national parks. And it was established through the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act in 1872. And it was President Ulysses S. Grant who signed the landmark bill. And that's what made Yellowstone our first national park. And it actually set aside 1,221,773 acres of public land to be preserved as this great place of leisure. And I'm going to read you guys part of the act from 1872. Let me put on my best announcer's voice here. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that the tract of land in the territories of Montana and Wyoming, lying near the headwaters of the Yellowstone River, and described as follows, and then they say a bunch of words to describe exactly where this area is, is hereby reserved and withdrawn from settlement, occupancy, or sale under the laws of the United States, and dedicated and set apart as a public park of pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. So this act of establishing the National Park Service is commemorated in stamps. So the Woodrow Wilson House has a link to Woodrow Wilson's legacy explored through the United States Postal Stamps. And it was created for the Woodrow Wilson House by a high schooler named Tracy Homer. And it was through their Woodrow Wilson House Scholars Program. And I'll provide a link, but it's this really fun online exhibit that explores the history of Woodrow Wilson through the different stamps that commemorate things that he's done or parts of history that he was involved with. So that's kind of a fun little way to look through part of the history. And also in the stamp collection is a stamp that celebrates Wilson winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1919 for drafting the League of Nations. Though I love history and love museums, I am sad to say I really didn't know that much about Woodrow Wilson history or honestly much about the Nobel Peace Prize besides it being this huge prestigious award. So I asked Elizabeth to tell me a little bit more about what Wilson won, besides obviously the money. I remember that part. Sure, of course. He got the Nobel Peace Prize because um, he went to Versailles, went to Europe. He, He had America engage in the war World War One. Much he did not want to. He actually ran his second uh, second term was a, against being in the war. He really saw peace. He had visions of peace. Unfortunately, there were there was the Zimmerman telegraph that made it apparent that Germany was engaging us in war. Um, but his his vision was for peace and went to Versailles and the signing of the peace treaty. His vision and was to and he brokered this 
vision of peace among the parties in Europe. So that's what he got it for, is for the Versailles Peace Treaty. And I know he also had a lot to do with the League of Nations, right? He had this, in fact, they say that that's part, you know, he left the White House and some people say a broken man. He he went on, created the League of Nations, this vision of the League of Nations, which it was just a, a little bit ahead of its time for America in that we didn't become the United Nations for another 20 years under Franklin Roosevelt. But he had this vision of the League of Nations, came home from the war, uh, from signing the, the, the peace treaty, and wanted to take a roadshow, you know, on, on getting uh, across America, lobbying to have the League of Nations signed and um, have America join it while he was on this road trip um, by train, had a stroke and had to return back to the United States, return back to Washington, DC. So um, he did have this, he did create the 14 points, the League of Nations. This was all Wilson's view and goal for America and for other countries to join this league so that another war would not break out. Of course, as I said, the, the United States Congress didn't ratify acceptance uh, America's acceptance into the league so there is some element of failure for Wilson there's also some element of you know it, it was he he left the White House almost a broken man he'd had a stroke his vision for this League of Nations wasn't seen and I think in part that's why Edith was just so adamant about creating a house and a place where we would look at the positives, not just the negatives. I mean, and he really did have this image of America as a leader and wanted that to be part of his, his legacy. Well, and talking about some of the wonderful things that you have in this museum, we have a very special baseball. So it's World War One. Let's go back. It's World War One. It is Independence Day. July 4th, America's Independence Day, during World War I, 1918. And the war basically stops for a day to watch an exhibition baseball game between the United States Navy team and the United States Army team. So it doesn't just stop, because don't forget, this is in London where this takes place. So London, exhibition baseball game between army versus navy king george v and his family come to watch this game not only he come but all of london stops to see this baseball game and they had just put up netting i mean we're in the middle of a war so there were things flying overhead to protect from german bombing i mean it was it was still they were they didn't want to be caught off guard king george comes out and he was going to be able to throw the first pitch which is quintessential American that you throw the first pitch, but they had just put up all this netting to be protected as if the netting is really going to protect the king. But uh, <laughs> so he couldn't actually throw out the first pitch, but he does give it to the, he meets the umpire, he meets the captains of the Navy team, the captain of the army team, and um, they proceed to watch this baseball game, as does all of London. The whole, all, the whole war stops to watch this game. We, the Wilson House, ha he signs this, the baseball and is later sent, sends it over to Woodrow Wilson as a commemorative baseball. And that's what we have in our collection in the room, the dugout. 
this dugout because he really liked baseball. And the baseball, the reason I think it's so important is because America has joined the war. They've they've asked us. We we really we're we're you know brought into the war to kind of finish it, to to get it over the line, over the finish line. Um, then we're brought in to, to help negotiate this peace. But the moment that we come into World War I as a political power, as a um, negotiation power, as a, a leader on the world stage, this baseball game takes place on our American Independence Day in London on the day that we had actually been fighting for independence against, London, against, against the Brits. And so for us to be recognized on our Independence Day is actually rather remarkable. It's not even, it's 200 years later and, and they're already recognizing us as our own country. But more importantly, we're now exporting or being recognized for one of our pastimes. And a pastime is really spreading our culture. And it wasn't until we start to see other countries looking to America of our pastime that we're starting to spread our culture. And that's really the turn of America becoming seen as a world leader, not just politically, but also culturally. And so that's why I think that this baseball represents something so much bigger. It's not just a baseball. It's, it's the story behind that baseball being played that day in London with the King of England signing the baseball is really rather remarkable. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thanks for teaching us all about Woodrow Wilson. And I really appreciate you being on here. Thank you. Great. Okay. My pleasure. It's really great. <laughs>